Hello and welcome to the Canadian Wargamer Podcast. Yes, it's the Canadian Wargamer podcast featuring two affable and youngish granddads, Mike and James, talking about primarily miniature wargames and the occasional hex and counter excursion from Mike from our unique perspective in the Great White North. And as the strains of La Foy d'Arabla die away, here are your hosts, Mike and James. Hey folks, welcome to episode 17 of the Canadian Wargamer podcast. James, how are you now? We're all right. Yep. How are you guys? Pretty good. And we're delighted to welcome tonight Thomas Moore. I'm trying to think of some joke, Thomas, that you probably have heard like a thousand times before about the man for all seasons or something like that, or, or St. Thomas More, or... How about we just no? say hello, sailor? Yeah. Thomas, Thomas, how are you? I'm well, gentlemen. Thank you. I'm honored to be here, actually. Ooh, honored. Okay. Well, we're honored to have you. Yeah. We'll uh, we'll get to you in a minute, and we're going to invite you to hang out with us for the, the whole Wretched podcast, which may be a little bit short tonight because we, we're struggling with our internet connections. But the uh, the big news, James, that I put up on Twitter earlier today is that we passed 5,000 downloads. Woo! And we are very, very grateful to everybody who uh, who's done that. And... Uh, just the other day too, I got a I got a message uh, from Miles um, uh, Reedy, who's one of the um, people behind Little Wars TV. And Miles okay. uh, was like, "Hey guys, love your podcast. Uh, we should do something together. That'd be cool." And we I was should. like, "Oh my god, Little Wars TV likes us!" You know, so <laughs> perfect. Yeah, well, we're the cool kids in school now. That was. Uh, it's been a good week. It's yeah, been a good week for the. Yeah, so that was exciting. That was exciting. Uh, onwards and upwards, and we'll we'll do the little promo thing at the end about how you can uh, support the Canadian Wargamer podcast. Just waving at Thomas and whoever poked their... That was my wife, Rita. Hi, Rita. Hi, Rita. Glad you're on the podcast, Rita. You didn't know you were going to be a guest star, did you? So yeah, we're delighted, uh, Thomas, to have you tonight, and you are... I would I would say probably not wanting to be overly complimentary, but I would say you're just one of the nicest guys on Twitter on hobby Twitter. You're constantly uh, uplifting people. You're, I've never I've never seen a negative tweet from you. Your your oh, posts are always yeah posts are always interesting, and and uh, your the stuff you do with Canadian military history is always fascinating. So you may not be the Saint Thomas More, but you're um, you're a uh, you're a darn nice guy, and we're really really glad to have you. And you're kind of a, a Canadian grognard, really. You're one of the one of the more grizzled members of our hobby, and you're out on the West Coast. So you're agreeing to meet with us three hours ahead of our time. So that's cool. Or behind our time. Anyway. Mind, yeah. 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 So yeah, welcome. We're, in, we're in the future. Thomas is still in the past. Yeah. We're in the future. Yeah, we're okay. waving to him from three hours ahead in the future. Yeah, it's it's yeah. eight o'clock your time. It's five o'clock my time. Yeah, we're in the future and we don't even have jetpacks. They promised us jetpacks. Right. Future. I know. The future is very disappointing. It is. Yeah. I'm one so, of those kinds of people that has, you know, I, I prefer to say something nice. If I have nothing nice to say, they don't say anything at all. Well, that is you know, a great 
way to be in hobby social media, you know, because yeah. I just hate it when those guys, you know, you put something up and they pick, you know, yeah. or oh, you got the facings wrong or you, it's like, shut up. And you know, the thing is, it's your figures. And if, if the facings are wrong and, you know, sometimes they run across that and they go, oh, well, who cares? There's going to be a thousand figures on the table anyways. Who's going to know except for me or the right. one guy that yeah. goes, oh, well, those are the wrong color. Yeah. So move on. Yeah. Let's see yours. Exactly. Oh, you haven't painted any. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But enough about the Facebook seven years war group. That's, <laughs> that's I get it on the Napoleonic Wars group too. It's, it's just too painful. Yeah, those are great for the flags are in the wrong positions. Like, oh, oh, yeah, and the their flagpoles are too tall. Flags yeah. upside down. Yeah, whatever, whatever. Yeah. So, you're right, Michael, because um, I am a grog nerd. I started working when I was 15, and that was oh, 49 years ago. So, who's yeah. counting? Mm -hmm. Yeah. You look almost as ancient and grizzled as we do, so that's Very saying cool. something. Looking pretty youthful. For someone, for, for, oh, I'm not going to do the math, but I think you're older than me. So 64. I think your, your, your skincare regime is doing really well for yeah, you. 64. Oh, you, you don't look a day over 59. Here you go. <laughs> Flattery will get you everywhere. So everywhere. Thomas, why don't you uh, tell us a little bit about your, uh, your, your bio and your Wargaming bio, and, and if you want to, you know, tell us some exciting stories about your time with... Uh, Royal Canadian Navy. Um, well, I, uh, I joined the Royal Canadian Sea Cadets back in 1970, uh, 13. We were living in Toronto at the time. So I joined the uh, RCSCC Vanguard at HMCS York and spent a year there with was a, a friend of mine back then. His name was Danny Spadafore. He's the guy who said, once you join the Sea Cadets. So I really enjoyed it. They had a four inch gun on the deck there at HMCS York, which kind of awed me. Oh, this is so cool, right? And, yeah, sea cadets get to fire guns. It's pretty cool. You guys get to fly planes, though, or at least, you know, fly, fly gliders. Okay, yeah, there's that. You've done some very cool things with your cadets, my friend. Well, yeah. But anyway, back to Thomas. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, and then uh, we moved to Vancouver, so I transferred into RCC Captain Vancouver at uh, HMCS Discovery. And uh, I spent five years in the cadets. Um, during the, it was there, it was a, a Killick, the leading seaman, for those who don't know what a Killick is. And I volunteered to go on the HMCS Columbia for six weeks in my summer holidays. So there was uh, three of us from the unit, uh, myself, Glenn, who was a good buddy of mine back then, and uh, Pollock, I can't remember his first name. Anyways, he spent six weeks on the, on the, the ship just being a crew member. And, uh, you know, he used to look out. They transferred us from all the different departments to see what it was like. We were in ops, we were in supply, we were in the you know, kitchen, all the rest of it. We did the whole ball of wax, right? Engine room. Um, and the Columbia back then was built in 1959. It's now a reef along the West Coast. So, but, uh, you know, we had jack stays at one o'clock in the morning in the pounding rain and uh, we're out in the forecastle. Um, and uh, the waves are crashing over and hitting the brick wall. And there's 20 of us huddled down behind there trying to stay warm. Uh, we'll be transfer a pallet of toilet paper from one ship to the other from HMCS provider. So it was interesting. And there was a, another time we we're doing a jack stand. They decided to transfer anti-submarine mortar bombs uh, from provider to us. So it was a bit rough that day. And the, uh, the buffer, who's uh, basically the chief NCO, says, okay, if this thing hits the side of the ship, we're in deep trouble. 
So don't let it hit the side of the ship. Of course, you know, the ships are going like this back and forth. And there's 40 of us on a three inch hawser, a four inch hawser hanging onto this thing and reeling across this 500 pound mortar bomb. And of course the ships come together right at the time the mortar bombs to come on our ship. And it swung down like this and a buffer says down, everybody hit the deck and bang hit the side of the ship. Didn't go off. Otherwise it wouldn't be here. <laughs> I'm, I'm just imagining, um, I, I know the Canadian forces weren't, were a little more loosey goosey with like getting cadets in, you know, mm-hmm. getting their hands dirty with doing fun stuff. But I still imagine there were some petty officers who were told by the chief, don't let these kids die or we're in trouble. I'm sure, yeah. <laughs> you know? yeah. And they were probably just sweating every time you guys are like doing anything. Oh, yeah. Well, they, they kept us in pretty safe places. I mean, I spent a lot of time on lookout uh, simply because younger people have better eyes, I guess. Uh-huh. And, uh, you know, if you're in starboard lookout duty for a watch and then you import lookout duty for a watch and back on starboard again. <laughs> so they kept us pretty busy. But I, I tell you, it was. It was interesting because you had three big square meals a day and snacks in between, and they still lost about 10 pounds. Wish you could do that now, eh? Wish you could do that now, exactly. But uh, then I joined the reserves after that, uh, HMC's Discovery, and um, went to the Montreal Olympics in 76 as a VIP driver for a major general uh, in the Ugandan Army. Uh, and there was that whole deal where they had um, Taiwan. China didn't want Taiwan in it, so... China pulled in a bunch of uh, cards with all these different countries and uh, Uganda decided to pull up. At that time, Idi Amin was the guy in charge. Hmm. So he called up uh, this fellow that was the VIP. I'm not going to mention his name because he was later killed by Idi Amin. Um, He and his whole family. Um, I read that in the newspaper. But Idi Amin called him up and said, you have to bring the team home. 23 members. And he says, he told me, he says, well, the, the people put the money together. The government not, didn't pay me a dime to do this. The government had big sales and, and people had big sales and car washes and all this stuff and, and just donated money to bring the team of 23 members plus him to the Olympics. And he says, I have no orders to bring them home. I have no choice. And this, this big man who was a major general in the Ugandan Air Force is just tears pouring down his face because his team has to go home. Right? And that's the last I saw of him. And that was just before the Olympics started. So um, I wound up being a spare driver, driving all these different people. I met the defense minister for Trinidad and Tobago, spent a day with him. Such an intelligent man, right? If I could remember and record what we talked about, I was 18 at the time. I don't remember any of that, but just an amazing fellow. The New Zealanders were a lot of fun. Just, uh, it was a good time. Uh, went back to Esquimalt, to Sigelman's course, went back to the unit. Uh, we had a, a chief petty officer who was in the reg force and he just demobbed and joined HMCS discovery. Um, he was supposed to teach us signals. So we had the first class and the next class came along and he never showed up. Turns out he was in chiefs and POs mess. So um, I went up to the office and they said, well, uh, you took the course last year. I said, yes, you just teach all the new guys. So that's what I did. I took over the course and I taught them everything I knew about it. And they had a ball. They went over to the course and did this all that summer. And they knew everything. They didn't, they didn't have to learn anything from the guy that was there. So. Oh, good on you. It worked out. Hmm. Um, 
the only beef I had was that I was uh, living with one of the best looking women in the unit. Uh, Jennifer was her name. And we met in the Naval Reserve Student Summer Training Program that summer in 1975. Um, anyway, we started living together in 76 and after we joined the unit. But some guy obviously didn't like me because I was with her and he shredded all my files. So when it came for me to get promoted to Killick, there was nothing in my file. It was completely empty. Huh. So the unit in their great wisdom decided, okay, well, you're an able seaman. Um, actually, the, the Ottawa said you can be an able seaman because you spent five years in the cadets. They automatically gave me one strike, right? And because there was nothing in my file, they said, okay, you have to go back to ordinary seaman and start all over again. And I Same. took my hat off, took my ID badge, plunked it in the desk and I walked out, never went back. Mm. Huh. So that's the story mm -hmm. of the, uh, the Navy. Oh, you, I, I, I was under the impression your career in the Navy was much longer. No, it wasn't. I wish <laughs> it was, but it wasn't. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you quit with integrity. Yeah, exactly. Um, <laughs> you know, saves Rita following you around from post to post for years. So. Exactly. Yeah. Well, yeah. I was, you know, I, I, I looked at joining the Reg Force. In fact, I had a chance of going to Royal Roads. Um, mm -hmm. But I thought about it long and hard, and, you know, I wanted to have a family. And I know full well that's really tough when you're in the yeah. Navy to, you know, to be away so much. And I thought, okay, no, really, that's not the life for me. Especially, well, you're, yeah, you're a few years older than me. And the age when we were, like, certainly when I was old enough to be looking at joining, you know, it was force reductions and incredible deployment tempos. You were, you were away 18 months at a 24 yeah. You know, and that was terrible for family life. Oh, yeah. Yeah. It's gotten a lot better in the Air Forces now, mm -hmm. but back then it was, it wasn't that great. So those were the choices I made. And yeah. I think I made the right yeah. choice in the, in the end of it also. Yeah. We would have both ended up in like the former Yugoslavia and come home with yeah. a great case of peace. I had a similar conversation with my, my brother, Chris, who's been visiting us from Chilliwack the last few days. And he had a brief four year career um, with the Patricias and the, in the, in the late 70s when they were still at work point and uh, mm -hmm. yeah he was talking about how miserably underpaid the canadian forces was then and and what a, how under resourced it was and he uh, yeah he doesn't regret his decision to get out at the time but you know everybody makes their own decision right for whatever reason yeah. when did the when did the wargaming start thomas i started wargaming at about the age 15. there was nice. um a hobby shop on west broadway called grand prix hobbies and there was a chap in there um, that brought in CNC, uh, yeah, CNC micro armor. Ooh. And of course, I thought mm -hmm. those were the next best things to slice bread, right? Uh, bought a bunch of them, didn't know how to paint. Um, really damn. Even though I painted models when I was a little kid. I mean, in the age of six, seven, eight, there was a local store, the Black Point General store, brought in a wire metal rack with bags of airfix, airplanes and tanks and things, right? And I bought every World War I airplane Ooh. to get my hands on and paint them up. Um, Silly me, I painted one out and put it outside in the sun to dry off and it melted, <laughs> worked itself. <laughs> oh dear. When, you, when you're seven, you just don't know what you're doing, right? So yeah. anyways, but uh, yeah. we started pushing tanks around on a, on a board on the, on the carpet and rolling dice and we kind of invented our own rules. And um, you know, another buddy of mine, uh, Ron Gibson, we painted up Airfix American Civil War figures, uh, of course with enamel paints and you know the barrel cracks as soon as you start moving them around yeah. uh, we put them on bases and rolled buckets of dice and then there was um 
a fellow by the name of Jack Hutchings. And he started the Trumpeter Wargamings Club. Right. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Back yeah, in always oh, before you, you know, I was probably five or six when he started it. So mm-hmm. you know, I used to take I took the bus all the way out to his place, which was like you know, an hour and a half bus ride just to get there. And wow. he had a basement, he had three tables set up. And he his he, he wrote his own rules and it was called the buckets and dice rules. Of course, he always had a bucket of dice. There's everything he rolled 10, 15 dice at a time. And he had the uh, World War rules, he had American Civil War, he had Napoleonics. And a lot of them were very similar with small changes because it was all based on the same set of rules. So Ron and I would play the American Civil War rules, which is a lot of fun. And then um, the Trumpeters, I was a member of the Trumpeters for many years. Uh, we would meet on Sundays um, at the Wise Hall. I was a treasurer for about four years after the previous treasurer pinched a bunch of money out of the account, um, which wasn't a good idea. So Thanks. they wanted they wanted someone they could trust, I guess, they trusted <laughs> me, so I became treasurer and uh, continue on with the trumpeters. Um, and that's where I met the White Rock guys. There was, uh, mm-hmm. there was a bunch of, um, it was a convention we had uh, in Burnaby, and I'd helped set it up. And a fellow by the name of Rick Stevens, who is, about six foot five and 240 pounds in his prime. And it was a sergeant in the riot squad of the BPD, Vancouver Police Department at the time. He eventually became a deputy chief. We put it, they put on an American Civil War game. And I guess I played well enough that they decided, okay, maybe he's you know, a decent enough guy. He knows how to play a war game. He can join us. So he invited us to one of the White Rock games. And that basically started it. Uh, and I would infrequently, I had another group I played with. I would infrequently go with the White Rock group. And then I got to the point where I wanted to be with those guys and play with those guys on a regular basis. So I moved to White Rock from Vancouver. <laughs> wow. <laughs> I just went, okay, I want to game with those guys. So I'm going to go move out of that direction. And I kept on moving further south. So you got to the border where White Rock is. And I've been here for ooh, 26 years now, I guess. Oh, and that's, wow. you know, we've the White Rock group as it stands has been together for about 30 years. Nice. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there's been a couple of new guys that have joined, uh, yeah. Mark and Colin, uh, Francis, who owns the largest hobby shop on the West coast, Imperial hobbies. He, uh, he joined the group after about 10 years. I was in the group. Uh, Mark's been there about 15. Colin, he's another policeman. We got a lot of policemen in the group or ex-policemen. Uh, he joined about 12, 13 years ago, but it's been pretty steady since then. The real problem of course is, and it's one of the things we all talk about is the green of the hobby, right? It's tough. It's tough to get the young guys to join in, but we do have a new guy, Jonathan, who's just graduated from university and is a lawyer. I don't to hold that against him much. Um, <laughs> just kidding, because uh, we have a lot of policemen, as you say, in the, in the group. But uh, he's 24, which is good to have young blood, right? Yeah, and he's a good guy. Mm-hmm. He seems to be a pretty good gamer, and he's keen to play Napoleonics. He bought a bunch of uh, plastics and painted them up. Uh, so he's he's a keener for sure, but the way ride group meets oh, every good. Thursday. Um, we have usually one, sometimes two games, depending. Chris Chris Leach, whom you probably know, uh, who's a rules writer. Um, oh yeah, yeah. He uh, he co-wrote Shaco Two. Oh uh, okay. Yep. He was also instrumental in Armadi with um, oh right name blank yeah. Um, Artie, Artie Conliffe. Right. Right. So Chris has been kind of Artie's 
right hand man for quite a number of years in his rule sets. Uh, so Armadi, Armadi 2. Um, I think I'm in the playtesting list in Armadi 2 and in Shaco 2. Um, so our group, White Rod group, playtested a lot of those. Uh, and there was um, there was going to be another set of rules that already was working on, but that kind of fizzled. Already didn't want to continue on. But every now and again, things come about, and Chris and he uh, collaborate. Chris has written Battles for Empire. Uh, it's a colonial rule set. Uh, he revised it and became a Battles for Empire 2. And he wrote, um, he's actually writing now an American Civil War set, which we're play testing, which is a lot of fun. It's based on the Battles for Empire. It has a similar morale and movement, but the firings changed. And we, we changed things around. And for instance, what is the range of uh, muskets as opposed to rifled musket or the smooth bore? Um, and you know, this is a, one of the books I'm going to talk about later, which is this one here, The Bloody Crucible of Courage uh, by Brent Nosworthy, mm -hmm. which is not a small book. <laughs> wow. It's quite, it's quite the tune. And it's all about the American Civil War and how it was fought and the weapons they used. Um, and one thing I did not know about rifled muskets is because they had a very low muzzle velocity. At long range, you actually had to shoot high. You had to actually aim the rifle high up so it would have a, a bell curve for the round itself. So you had to judge at 500 yards or 300 yards where that person was to how high you actually rose the musket up. And the, some of them had leveling sights on them. And the guy had to practice a lot to actually be able to shoot and hit a sit something at 500 yards or even 300 yards away. So that's why they continually say that there's um, the ranges these guys got to about within 100 yards before they really started doing any damage or even 50 yards. They would stand 30, 40, 50 yards away, blazing away and slaughtering each other. The same thing with the Napoleonics, smoke. Everything is not smokeless powder. So you look at uh, Tom, who's one of the reenactors in Ontario, and some of their reenactment battlefields, there's smoke everywhere. Yeah. Imagine a real battlefield with artillery banging away. And how can you, what can you see after the first three, four rounds anyways? So, and how does that, is that reflected in the rule sets we play? No, you can always see the opposite, the opposing side very clearly all the time, which I find very interesting. Well, and, I always figure that's, yeah, where, yeah. that's where reaction, you know, and people say, oh, well, my guy should be able to form square because, you know, they, they'll see, but maybe they don't see that cavalry charging. Exactly. Right? And, yeah. that's, and that's why they didn't, they, you didn't pass the roll to form square. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Right? Well, in Shaco, too, that if you try and form a square, there's what they call hasty square, right? Yeah. So if cavalry is within a certain distance, you roll to see if you get hasty square. If you get it, you do. If you don't, then generally speaking, you're going to lose. But I was going to say, how, how big is the White Rock group? Um, well, we have nine regulars. Okay. Right? They meet every Thursday, pretty much nine of us. Sometimes it's only six or seven of us, depending on who's available that particular week. You know, life gets in, in the way, things like that. Yeah. There's other more peripheral members that kind of show up every now and again. But there's also um, Francis, who owns the hobby shop. He has another group, a Monday night group, with about five or six guys. And sometimes we'll dovetail both groups together. So particularly if we do a World War One air game like Canvas Eagles, okay. there'll be 10, yes. 12, 14 of us there in one game, right? Which makes it a real furball when you get seven aircraft on both sides. Um, yeah. It's going to be a lot of fun. And those games look really cool. Love the pictures of them. 
Yeah, yeah. The Canvas Eagle yeah. games are they're a lot of fun. They're a real blast. So yeah. So this is all in the back in the back room of a hobby shop. Nope. We, um, floor of a hobby shop. With the group itself, um, Francis has a table in his basement, um, big table. It's twelve by six, and his hobby room. He's got lined with figures and books, and he's got another table set up for painting. Wednesday nights he has a painting night with all the guys. I don't do that. Uh, Chris has two tables. He's got a twelve by six and another four four by six. So sometimes we have two games and we have enough people for that night. So I'll do, say, a Cruel Seas game or a Victory at Seas game or a Rapid Fire Reloaded game on the small table and then an Armadi or a Shaco game or something like that on the uh, on the large table, right, in his basement. Uh, Rick Stevens has a beautiful games room in his basement. He's got those lawyer's cabinets with the glass doors on them. Mm-hmm. Um, he's lining two walls with those. And he's his tables, I think, 11 by 6. And then there's Gene, who only games in the wintertime. He's got an 18 by 6 foot monster. So we play a lot of the big games on that. Zoinks. Uh, yeah. And that, that's where the big big games of Shaco are happening on Gene's The table. big games of Shaco, or we'll have two Armadi games going at the same time. Okay. So it, it's very much um, whoever, you know, someone will say, hey, I want to host, I want to host whatever. Yeah, and everybody. Okay, we're going to Francis's yeah. house or Jean's house. Exactly. Yeah. Oh, that's very that that all sounds very civilized. Well, we have a all of us are on a on a WhatsApp. Yeah. So, and honestly, we natter like a bunch of old women. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and of course, there's no there's 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 a lot of jibing and you know things like yeah. this. Francis, one of the group bought himself um, about a thousand Romans from Foundry. And behind behind the shield, there was no elbow. So he built a thousand elbows and glued them on. <laughs> of course, that particular joke goes around an awful lot. Okay. Just going to cover it with the shield, but whatever. <laughs> he knows they're there. So yeah. you know. he knows they're there. Yeah. And of course, we, you know, that's that's the joke of the group on a regular basis. So elbows, yeah. right? Yeah, no, do it the right way. He's a little huh. about that. So. Yeah, but, uh, yeah. yeah. We still we still tease one of my friends about dry brushing the lug nuts on one two eighty fifth scale Humber armored cars. Really? Yeah. Well, he's just he he'd been dry brushing and he just happened to pick up that detail and he's so proud of it. He had to point it out to everybody, and so we just tease him. Forty years later, it's still hey, how about those lug nuts? Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah. everybody gets teased about it. That's pretty normal. Yeah. What's that? And it goes back and forth all the yeah. time. It's... But this sounds great because then if you know one person isn't isn't available that week, yeah, and you have somebody else's host it, you got like three, four games rooms to play in. Yeah. Well, yeah. There's you can go to either one. If you know Chris isn't that's... available, we'll go to Francis. If Francis we'll go to Chris. Uh, yeah, Rick will put on a game at his place. Or there's another chap who's a medical doctor in Richmond, Dennis. And he'll put on a game every now and again at Rick's place. So he'll pop in and, and do a game. And for instance, mm-hmm. not this Sunday, but following Sunday, the 24th, we're going to have what we do is called Eric Con. Uh, Eric, who is another ex-policeman, he's now a uh, special investigator for the BC Coroner's Unit. Um, he has a five-acre property out in Langley. He's got horses and he's got a you know, big grassy backyard. So we get this big tent. We set up a big tent. And you've probably seen pictures of that on Twitter, right? Right, um, during, during COVID especially. Exactly. Yeah, we set up the tent and we have two t- two tables or one big table. 
Um, and we put on a word name in his backyard. He, everybody brings coffee and donuts and stuff in the morning. And then he makes lunch, usually burgers or bratwurst sausages or something. Uh, and then he cooks up dinner for us. Usually we had chicken. He did a, he had a smoked brisket the first time. And that was amazing. Um, so this, this week, that weekend coming up, we're going to do a rapid fire reloaded game. I think we're going to do a victory, victory at sea game. We're going to do a, uh, fields of glory from, this is one of Chris Leach's old scenario books. Okay. We're going to do, uh, uh, the battle of Montmorel. Right. And that's the, uh, the Russians and the Prussians and the French. Yeah. Now Eric's painted up a whole bunch of French guards. So they're going to, that'll be their first, uh, first kick at the cat. So. Cool. Oh, they're going to get butchered then. Yeah, as yeah. always, they should. Brand new unit. Yeah, yeah, freshly painted unit. That's classic, right? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> and there's going to be um, an ECW, Shaco. I forget. But then it's before games. So two games in the morning, two games in the afternoon. It's a mini convention, basically. Yeah. Right? yeah. Just great. with our group. So there'll be nine, maybe ten of us there. With hamburgers. Yeah, with hamburgers, you know, and a baby or two. So, Mike, I want to move to White Rock. Right. I was going to say, I yeah, I'm I'm with you, buddy. I you know, and the gardening's good out in BC, so Elizabeth would like it. Exactly. Yeah. 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 Winters here are you're pretty decent. You know, we get maybe a week, two weeks of snow, and that's it. Ah, shucks. Yeah. But to Thomas, there's a lot I want to circle back to and what you were saying, but when you were talking about um, Chris and his scenarios. It, I, I know that he's in Manitoba, but uh, Michael Hopper is he? Is he sort of uh, familiar to you? Oh yeah, yeah. He's he's kind of a, um, uh, I guess a peripheral or a, a outside a Manitoba member of the White Rock Group. Right, right. The yeah. unofficial member of the White Rock Group because he's he's not with us on a regular basis, but he's we contact we talk to him all the time by email. Um, he's come out to our convention here. He's gone to Enfilade down in Montreal, Washington, a few times. Mm -hmm. So we've game with him down there. Um, really good guy. Yeah. Uh, he's, he designs the scenarios and uh, we, we, we do a lot of play testing for him too, actually. Mm -hmm. so yeah. We're hoping to have him on at some point. Yeah. He's, he's a good guy. He's a really good guy and he's brilliant with the scenarios. It's, I know he's got yeah. about four or five guys he games with in, in Winnipeg. Um, mm -hmm. I don't know the names of them or anything really about them. He tells us a little bit. They don't get the game that often by the sounds of it. Uh, probably due to scheduling yeah. and who knows, but um, yeah. you know, he's he's got some great scenarios. The only the only real pet peeve I have with him is that he designs them the scenarios, particularly the maps, uh, true to actually what was on the battlefield. And trying to put that on a game table sometimes can be a little tough. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah. we tend to we tend to tailor it to what's going to work for the table, right? Yeah, you have to. Yeah, you yeah can for sure. But oh, it's having having the raw to, i guess the raw geographical data and then you abstracting it yourself is maybe better than you know coming to a scenario where the designers already abstracted it for you and then you go well this doesn't really work mm -hmm. you know? yeah mm -hmm. yeah so, run across that too yeah uh, where, the, where the, the map's actually too simplified yeah. yeah yeah i was doing an historical scenario for an event at the end of may and i i looked at two or three different sources uh, including Google Earth, and um, they were all um, contradictory to one another. So I ended up using the the map, um, a very simplified version of the battle from the uh, one of the Command and Colors Napoleonic scenario books, just because it worked for the table. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. 
maybe that was cheating, but it worked for me. Well, it depends on the size of table you have too. You know, if it, it says it's yeah. supposed to be an eight by six and you've only got a six by six, then you know. Yeah, and the scale of the figures too. Yeah, yeah, scale of the figures yeah. too. Yeah. Well, you know, Mike, I won that game, so you obviously did a great job. Thank you, thank you, James. You were, yeah, you, it was a stunning victory for the Austrians. Yes. Um, I really like the fact that you guys use WhatsApp because you know that's one of my pet peeves with gaming groups, including. You know, sorry, guys, the, the one that I'm involved in in Barry right now is that um, we are really, really bad at communicating. And usually it's just sporadic emails mm -hmm. often sent out too late to do any any real planning. Mm -hmm. And I think that's just brilliant that you guys are, uh, you know, I could see WhatsApp or Slack being a similar sort of tool. But, you know, that you guys are communicating almost in real time. That's great. Oh, yeah. Yeah, we are in real time. We can set it up and say, you know. And I tend to be more the organizer. So I'll organize the, not necessarily what the game will be, but who's going to be there, right? And who's available and keep track of all of that and say, okay, you know, who's available for this Thursday? And we got this guy, this guy, this guy, and Mark's not available and Colin can't work because he's coming I mean, because he's working, et cetera, et cetera. So we have six or seven guys, which means we had to kind of tailor the game for that number of people, right? And see how that mm -hmm. goes. That's so nice. Yeah. Having yeah. been that guy trying to organize. Yeah. And yep. It's, yeah, it's, a, you know, it's always playing in my basement. And then, you know, you, you, you have an idea for a game and you know, okay, well, I need like, you know, six people and then only two can show up, you know, yeah. or, you, or you have an idea for just a, a nice, tight little two person game and mm -hmm. eight people show up and it's like, oh, okay. Exactly. Yeah. And sometimes what we'll do is we'll set up a game say that it's a Shaco game or a Napoleonic game of some kind with uh, four divisions, two aside, right? And all of a sudden we have six guys. So we'll just throw a couple more divisions on each side, one more division, right? Just say, okay, well, we're going to expand the scenario a little bit, we'll fudge it and get out there and play and not worry about it too much. Mm -hmm. Yeah, if, as long as you've got the, you, your group obviously has the figures to do that. Oh, yeah. Yeah, we've got, uh, I, I, don't, I don't know how many hundreds of thousands of figures we have between all of us. Um, you know, Rick, Rick was busy selling off collections so he could buy more figures. And I bought over a thousand Russian Napoleonic from him for like $200 because he wants them to stay in the group. Um, That's I also crazy. bought a, a 350 figure, uh, Italian Wars Renaissance army Pretty. for mm. 200 bucks. Right. So, and they're all sitting in the locker, of course, because there's no space here where we are. <laughs> well, yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Um, do we want to get into the why they're in the locker? Sure, we can do that. Yeah, but, yeah, yeah, yeah. Some people on Twitter would know that I, uh, August 31st of last year, there was a fire in the apartment building we were living in uh, about 1130 at night. Um, I was sitting in the living room listening to music with headphones on, listening to, of all things, Bismarck by Sabaton. Um, <laughs> when you think about it, kind of apt. Anyways, yeah. Well, Rita comes out uh, and she pulls one uh, ear off and says, "Well, can you hear screaming?" I says, "What screaming?" And I pull them off. She says, "Screaming going on in the hallway." Okay, so what's going on? I get up, open the door. The door was the hallway's full of smoke. So I go, "Okay, well, how serious is this?" So I start walking down the hallway to the apartment next door. The door is open. There's smoke billowing out of it. The smoke's getting thicker and thicker, and I'm thinking, okay, no, it's time to retreat. Um, so I went back to the our door, and Rita, automatic reaction, locked the door behind me. So 
I knocked the knock on the door. Okay. And just down the hall uh, is an escape door. So I go out the fire door uh, onto there's a large deck where we were. It's a 40 by 40 foot deck. Went onto the deck and back in through our sliding door where sliding door department was. By then, she's put on a little shift and a sweater, grabbed our laptops, uh, grabbed our accounts payable and receivable books, you know, the schedule, that sort of stuff, all the, all the business things. And she's on her way up the door. So I go back in and I, and we actually purposely put together a bug out bag um, with all the important papers, you know, paper passports and uh, all the documents that we need, right? And okay, where's the bug out? And I put it in one place. Unbeknownst to me, read it stashed through in a drawer. So I'm standing in the office going, I held the bug out bag. Where did she put it? <laughs> and there was a few expletives in there too. Um, so three or four minutes later, I walk back to the living room. Now the smoke's starting to pour in the living room fairly heavy. And I go, okay, well, it's time to go. What do we need? Wallet, keys, hat, coat, that sort of thing. So I grabbed about four or five coats because it was a cool evening. And by the time I got out onto the deck, uh, there was the living room was full of smoke. Um, and I could hear Rita down below because we were in the second story. There was a fire escape uh, stairs on the outside. And I can hear her yelling my name. And I said, that's oh, okay, I'm here, I'm fine, everything's all right. So we went down around to the front of the building, and by then there was flames pouring out of the apartment next door to us. Just, I have a video of it on my phone, it's just... Uh... That's scary. So the fire department shows up, White Rock Fire Department, famous White Rock Fire Department. Um, they set up a pump uh, for a hose, and the pump fails. So they have to dig up under the pump, and they start pouring water into it. They get the fire out pretty quickly, actually, uh, considering all of that. But pretty much everything got smoked so by now it's i don't know one o'clock 1 30 in the morning so all of us everybody got out okay even the two cats got out okay yeah. and um they took us to a, a community hall the fire department was there and you know some people and put water and some food and things and you got a place to stay you know with a hotel room whatever you need and we'd call a friend that said look you know he has a full basement can we stay there she said, yep sure come on no problem so we got there at three in the morning or something four in the morning slept um the next morning the fire department came we went to the the apartment building the fire department was there and they said okay you know we're going to send some guys in to get stuff we didn't and then you need so we just said you know get some clothes things like this some basic stuff right so i got a few things um and lost all my white rock gaming shirts we had to get new shirts because i lost all of mine it's white rock gamers right and uh all my uh, all my Hawaiian shirts and my White Rock Beach beer shirt and <laughs> all those all those things I really really like. So all of that got tossed, and pretty much all the soft goods got tossed. Um, all the electronics got tossed. Anything hard because the entire entire apartment was smoked completely. And they brought in those um, aerators, I guess, to try and get rid of the smoke. And all that does is push the smoke even more deeper into what you have. So uh, actually, the next day, an insurance adjuster came along too. So he was it was pretty good. But about a week later, um, the restoration team shows up. So the restoration team comes along and they said, well, "Do you want to help us?" "Yeah, sure." So we put on these white suits and the respirator mask and uh, the whole ball of wax, and we go in and we start going through things as much as possible. So what I did is I went. Fortunately, all of my figures were in the back room, and all of them are in Rubbermaid plastic tubs. Right. So they're fairly airtight. Um, and I went around to the back 
grabbed the tub, took it outside, did the, did the sniff test, and they were fine. So grabbed all the figures, pulled them out, set them, you know, set them aside so they were fine. Now, that particular time, I estimated my collection to be about worth $45,000 replacement value. Okay. So, because I had, you know, a fair number of figures. Yeah. And one of the things um, I didn't know is that the restoration team, say you have a house, a three-bedroom house, and that house you have, say, $200,000 of insurance on it, okay, for contents. Your collection's worth 50 grand. That's by $50,000, now you have $150,000. The restoration team comes in. They're going to try and solve it as much as possible if, if the house hasn't burnt completely, right? So however long they take comes out of your content insurance, including every box, every glove, every suit, everything they use, and all the time they spend. So for us, in four and a half days, it cost us $20,000 for the restoration team. So imagine if your three-bedroom house is there for three weeks. Now that's $60,000 out of your content insurance. So you got 60,000 restoration team, $40,000 for your collection. Now you get $100,000 left for everything else in the house. So pretty you got to think about when you have your insurance, think about how much your collection is worth. Also take pictures of it if you can, even if it's just a picture on the table where you're playing a game, because that way you can prove you had the figures. Yeah. Yeah. Right. And if you have them in tubs or whatever, you take a picture of them and you're actually better off to do it that way too. And try and get a reasonable amount of valuation because replacement value for a figure you painted opposed to buying it on eBay or from a professional uh, painter, that figure is going to cost $2 unless it's plastics. Um, and then you're going to pay five or six or seven or $8 for the paint job. So now you're paying $10 for a figure. So yeah. a 2000 figure army at $10 a figure. Yeah, that's right. Cause you yeah. won't, you, you certainly can't get the time back. No, you're not going to get the time back. Right. No. And you know, if that all turns to, lumps of molten lead or molten plastic and even book collections for that matter. I mean, how many war gamers have massive book collections? Right. St. Michael's library in the back there, right? Right. Well, that's, that's just the, uh, that's just the fiction collection upstairs. The war games libraries downstairs. Exactly. Yeah. So, and this is something that, uh, you know, I've never really thought about, but you're, I think you're, you're raising an issue, Thomas, that everybody in the hobby should think about is what is my collection worth? Mm -hmm. uh, what are what are all the other things like my my scenery, my my MDF buildings, my resin buildings, mm -hmm. my scratch built terrain, my my books, my rules? Um, what is that worth? And and if if um, my house was destroyed, um, would I be able to put a value on it, or as you say, to document it? I mean, those are really really kind of frightening questions. Mm -hmm. Yeah, if you lose everything and it, you have no proof of it. You know, you can tell yeah. people all you want and are they going to believe it? They may, they may not. Yeah. 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 And so the, you mentioned uh, you, you thought your collection was worth, um, I think you said 45,000. Yeah. About that. And was that something you had already determined before the fire or was that something, uh, a calculation you did afterwards? It was, that was just an estimate before actually the fire happened. Um, I was, I was thinking about it one day and I'm like, okay, well, I have this and this and this tethered up all the figures and rough numbers. And then said, okay, replacement cost at $6 a figure or $7. I can't remember what it was, right? Um, so mm -hmm. I think it was seven because it's $2 for the figure and $5 for a paint job. Someone else is going to do it for me, right? So the value would be about $7, and that's what it came up to. Wow. wow. You probably could uh, 
I mean, obviously everybody should go talk to their insurance rep, but I yeah. think you could probably get like an extra rider on top of your, you know, so contents of the house plus $50,000 to replace my collection. And that is, that's the way to do it, you know, and have it. Um, I know there's a, a company online that actually does valuations on, coll on collections. I can't remember what they're called, but I ran across them just doing a Google one day. And whether that's a valid, you know, a valid um, assessment of a collection or not, it's difficult to say. Mm -hmm. uh, but, you know, they would do it and they would charge you, I don't know, how many dollars for an assessment of your collection. You send pictures to them and how many and et cetera, et cetera. And they'd say, oh, it's worth this or it's worth that. But mm -hmm. put Google on eBay, I mean, those figures you buy out of China that are usually not very well painted um, run, you know, at, at a 12 figure units, $120, $130, right? So you're looking at $10 a figure on average. Or the, yeah, for instance, yeah. the, the fellows in Sri Lanka, they do a fair brisk business with figure painters or with the guys' figures. Uh, and they charge, I think it's like five or six or seven, depending on what, if you want a tabletop single coat, you know, just a block paint, or if you want to have some uh, you know, two layer or three layer Dalamar method, which I tend to do. Um, I'm a little crazy. <laughs> it's, you know, let's face it, the, the washes nowadays and the, the stuff they're using with um, the new paints. Yeah. You know, the Citadel. Yeah. 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 The inks and all the rest yeah. of it. I mean, it's, they actually do, they do a, do a nice job. You block paint, splash some of that on and you're done. Right. They're on the yeah. table. Yeah. I'm, I'm just finishing a, a unit of um, foundry figures and I, and I, recently become converted to the, the foundry paint method, you know, the Dalimore method, yeah. which is probably stupidly slow compared to what you just described, you know, like block paint contrast, you're done, but it amuses me. But I was looking at these figures to the day that I've been working on off and on for a month now, and I'm almost finished them. And I thought to myself, well, you know, what would be a fair price on these? Cause I, I'm not a great painter, but I've, mm -hmm. you know, put, you know, they're, they're each, each figure is the horses and the rider is, you know, three, uh, three tone layered, three layers, mm -hmm. three tones. Yeah. And yeah, I mean, I don't know. I, I'm not even sure $10 a figure would do it justice. No, probably not. But, More like 12. But or... then I don't, I don't know who I could convince to, to buy them. Exactly. At that, at that <laughs> I wouldn't price. Sell them. But sell them anyway. Yeah. Thing yeah. is, if you're going to have a professional painter to paint them, what would it cost you? Well, yeah. Yeah. The, the thing with your, your, uh, very successful, professional painters is they're fast yes which is how they can you know still get away with charging you, you know, six dollars for a nice tabletop finish and make a living at it yeah exactly you know, and I, I do the dalimore method too i'm right now i'm painting some zoobs some american civil war zoobs and they and it, one of the things i noticed about plastics is they don't have the same kind of uh cuts particularly in belts and the faces yeah. and things like that so and that doesn't necessarily lend itself to my style of painting for the, the Dalamore type method or the, the three layer. Um, and, you know, the, the pantaloons are nice. They have nice deep cuts on them, but the rest of the figure really doesn't have it. There's all this trim, gold braid or whatever on the jackets. And it's like, basically, you know, I have to slop on some red paint and then start painting up the details afterwards, right? Um, and I've got a 10-0 Winsor Newton 7 series paintbrush and I still can't get the details. Yeah, they're more the, the the lower relief stuff like plastics or Essex figures. Even um, I find they're much better for like the army painter dip. Yeah, 
you know, or just an Agrax yeah. wash, something like that seems to work better with that kind of sculpting. Exactly. Well, the, the front rank and the Calpe, they're the ones that uh, I really appreciate because they have nice oh, yeah. you know, deep cuts and things like that on them. So there's, those are my two favorite figures and, out there. Yeah, I, I haven't painted any Calpe. Um, yeah. But yeah, certainly I know when I when I painted my front rank last summer, it was like those figures were just pulling me in. Oh yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah they're fun. Yeah, block and there we go. And then it was like, no, I have to highlight this tiny detail. And it's like, yeah, yeah it's gorgeous. A pleasure to paint, really. Yeah, yeah, they were. That's why I don't beat myself about about taking a long time to paint a figure. Right, if I'm enjoying the ride, mm -hmm. then. Yeah, and you're Thomas. You're you're um, a pretty gifted painter. Like I've been admiring the 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 War of the Roses figures, the Clifford's Retinue stuff. You've been Thank showing you. us on Twitter the last month. Yeah, mm -hmm. uh, it's really a joy to see you painting again. Did you have to replace all your paints and brushes and stuff, or were they preserved as well? Um, well, at the time I was painting at the dining room table, and uh, yeah. I managed to save a few of those. Uh, there was maybe. Uh, 30 or 40 Vallejo paints and a couple of craft paints and most mm -hmm. of my brushes I managed to save I threw them in a bag right away and took them outside and we'll give them a good wash down with soap and water and they seem to be fine but a lot of the paints in the back room got tossed because I couldn't get to the restoration team we're just doing their thing and toss 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 so um yeah yeah fortunately they when they wrote them off they wrote off like 100 bottles of paint with full price so even though some of them were used and half half used, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, yeah, but there was, it actually worked out pretty good that way. But there was, uh, what happened just recently is because Francis owns the hobby shop, there's been a couple of fellows pass away and they had massive collections of models and figures and all the rest. So he's been selling them off for those two gentlemen. But all the paints, they're giving away. So he brought three big boxes of paint. And I, I must have picked up a hundred paints, all in Vallejo, for for nothing. So not bad. That kind of just placed yeah. a lot of my collection in one go there. Sadly, that's uh, I think that's the way of the future for all of us is that we'll be eventually uh, our stuff will be given away or, or we'll we'll be going through some. I I've told my wife Joy that if I ever uh, fall off my twig, um, she used to call James. And James will be my uh, mini executor. You'll just show mm -hmm. up. Uh, she'll just rent a van, rent a van for James, and he'll show up and take all my stuff and do with it as he wishes. So, yeah. And I'm the it's, same with you, right, buddy? Maybe. maybe. I plan on being buried like an Egyptian pharaoh, <laughs> surrounded by my armies, or Chinese like one of those Chinese kings with an army of one-to-one -one scale figures. In That's terracotta. right. Yeah. That's right. There you go. Yeah. yeah. But it's at Onfala, the, the big convention down at Olympia, Washington, there's always at least one or two estate sales every year. Yeah. We had right. a, we had um, one at Hot Lead, and then there's a, there was a dealer, and that's what they do is just estate sales. Oh, really? Okay. And then there was another guy who was privately selling off his friend's collection. It was just... Exactly. Yeah. And, you know, a lot of instances, mm -hmm. figured it's worth 5 or $6 yeah. for a buck. Yeah. Right. Oh, it was sad. Like he's selling these two gorgeous Franco-Prussian War armies, foundry figures. They're beautifully painted, and it was like, oh, I want that so badly. They're just so pretty. But even at even even at at a criminal price, I couldn't afford to buy them because the, the armies are just that big. Like, and I, I wouldn't have felt right 
you know, oh, I'll give you a hundred dollars for them. It's like, it's like, no, that's like 10 cents a figure. Fuck off. Yeah. You, you just can't do that. It's, it goes against the grain. Yeah. No, yeah. for sure. For sure. Yeah. I, he's, yeah. I think he's, he's going down to historic on, you know, he'll, you know, a bunch of Americans with, with deep pockets that'll uh, buy that stuff. So. Oh yeah, of course. Yeah, yeah for sure. Yeah. Yeah. Hmm? Um, so you, you talked a little bit about the, the various roles uh, that your group plays, the White Rock guys, and they're it was pretty diverse. Uh, I don't know if you had a chance to listen to our show last our last episode where we talked about uh, Napoleonic's roles, just as a an example of the proliferation of rule sets within the hobby and what makes a rule set worth looking at or not looking at or whatever. What are your go tos and what what rule sets that have come out recently are, are you and your friends um, excited by? Um. Honestly, we stick pretty much with Shaco, Shaco too. Um, mm-hmm. One of the main reasons, of course, is because Chris Leach co-wrote them. Uh, so right, it's right. You haven't really played anything else other than Shaco in years. We tried Blucher for a very brief period of time. Um, that didn't go over very well with some of the guys in the group. Uh, you know, there's mm-hmm. honestly there's problems with Shaco too. I mean, there's oddball things that we would love to change. Chris has written an errata for that, which is about two or three pages long to change a few things. And, you know, there's, there's always beefs with every rule set. And he's he's talked about doing a Shaco 3, but that means literally buying that rule set from Artie. So, and that means a cash outlay to produce another set of rules that you may or not make your money back on. So yeah. it's the same thing yeah. with Battles for Empire. He had it all done up and it was a nice rule set, but he lost money on, on the whole thing. So it's for him, it's more of labor of love. And it's the same with our movie player, Armadi Ancients. Um, Chris was, as I say, he was fiddling around with something called Armadi Big Battles, which never really came any, got anywhere um, because I already dropped the whole, maybe I shouldn't say that, but um, I'll probably get in trouble by mentioning it. <laughs> but, uh, and Chris has been working on other uh, ancient games, ancient Renaissance type game. So, when we do well, rapid fire, we do rapid fire, we do cruel seas, we do canvas eagles, uh, American Civil War, we played, we played Fire and Fury, uh, reg- or brigade level, we did Fire and Fury Regimental. Um, we tried Longstreet. Again, it was one of those, those card driven things like Blucher. Um, Sam Mustafa put out, and the whole card thing, the guys being a bunch of old farts, they just didn't like it. <laughs> There was lots of whining and complaining about that, so it didn't get very far. In fact, I have a complete, you know, two card decks and a rule set for Longstreet sitting somewhere. I don't know. I think it, it might have made out of fire. I don't know. There's boxes in the locker around the way. I say there's we have a locker about three minutes drive from here. It's a ten by ten. We have all our office files and things like that there as well, so I can write it off. Fortunately, um, but all my figures are in metal racks on both sides and inside, along with my golf clubs. <laughs> That's another thing. We're, we're kind of crazy because we war game on Thursdays and some will be golf on Monday. That way oh, we, can nice. check each other, nice. we can check each other about the gaming from the Thursday on the Monday. <laughs> so, and enviably tight-knit group you've got there. It is. It's, yeah. you know, we've, we've known each other for a lot of them, 25 more plus years, 25, some 30 years at least. Huh. So it, it's you get to know each other, you know each other's habits. Uh, Andrew and I are notorious for rolling ones. Um, we're known it's I rolled seven ones in a row with one game. Uh, someone else rolled 11. I think it was Andrew. And of course, when Andrew and I play against each other, we always try and outwin each other. So it <laughs> depends on who can roll the twos <laughs> and not the ones. <laughs> <laughs> it 
can make for an interesting game sometimes. Some of the guys, Mark and Colin uh, and Andrew, they like to experiment with some skirmish rule sets. Colin's getting into Cold War Commander 2. Uh, he likes that. Oh, yes. Yeah. So he's he's been, uh, I just bought some GHQ Egyptian uh, figures. I need to paint up. They're in the queue. Once I've done the Zoovs and I made the start on those. Um, so there's different different things as far as some skirmish games. But because the group is so big, it's tough to play a skirmish game unless you have it on that small table that Chris has. Because there's going to be seven, eight, nine of us around the table. Um, you can't really play a skirmish game. Right? Even the rapid fire reloaded at um, yeah. Onfalot, I had six guys at the table. But that's because it was pretty much battalion level with almost a full battalion of armor on both sides. You can split them up. Each guy gets a company of infantry and a, a company of tanks, et cetera, et cetera, and they can go at it, right? Uh, but a lot of these rule sets, especially they're, they're designed for a smaller group or just a smaller table, period. Yeah, you could have that large group. It's, it's difficult to put on a big game. So the, the big games, and we've done a lot of large games. We did Wagram. That was our first big game. That was a 36-foot table with about just under 7,000 figures. Right. Uh, oh, yeah. Uh, and then we did, I think we did Austerlitz after that, and we did Borodino, which was another monster. That was a 30-foot table with, uh, I think it was yeah, just under 7,000 figures again. Definitely not skirmish games. No, not skirmish games. Uh, we've done Waterloo, I think, four, three times in 28 millimeter and once in 15 millimeter. And the French always win. Yeah. Yeah. They just run over the, the Allied army. And just it, unless you have some really severe um, rules that restrict the French, they just don't make the same mistakes that Napoleon did. Yeah. As long as you don't yes. do the same yeah. things he did, then you're going to clobber the Allies. That's just just the way it is. Uh, Lenny, we played Lenny. We did that at a convention down an awful lot. We did Lenny and Waterloo uh, on the Friday night and on the Saturday. We had 16 gamers in each side, plus six or seven of us running the game. Uh, and Lenny went really well, except the French lost that one. Too bad. So sad. Um, and, of course, <laughs> Waterloo, in, in the right flank, the English decided to come off the hill and just got slaughtered. Why would they do that? But... Yeah, why would they do that? Uh, anyways. Yeah. Some bad tactical decisions in that one. But we've, we've done some pretty yeah. big games in Napoleonics. And even in Armadi, too, we had a, a big Roman Civil War game with probably about 3,000 Romans, about 1,500 yeah. each side. And all your, all, your figures, um, all your figures from what I've seen of your the photos you've shared on social media are 28 mil, is that right? Yeah, they're pretty much 28. Francis has a large collection of 15 mil uh, Napoleonics and a large collection of World War II 15 mil as well. Um, mm -hmm. The other guys have Desert War 15 mil. Uh, World War II, we game with 20 mil. But okay. everything else is all 28s. Yeah, all of us yeah. have pretty much 25, 28s. Some of the older figures, a Gene, he's got thousands and thousands of old minifigs that he's painted up. And he's a beautiful painter. It's, it's amazing the stuff he does. And he's yeah. still got, he's, he's, I don't know how many figures he has, at least 100,000 painted. And he's probably got, this is just as many. Uh, underneath the, the cabinets to paint up. Sorry, did you say a hundred thousand? About a hundred thousand, yeah. Crikey. Chris Chris himself probably has close to a hundred thousand or more. You go in his room, he's got shelves just 
you know, I did a quick estimate and this was, you're looking at 150, 200 figures per bin, right? Mm. And you've got, I don't know, 70, 80 bins there. Plus she's got stuff in the back room. Plus she's got some of my armies. I mean, he's, he's got my Greeks and my boxers and, you know, I can, I can see when your group has so many figures in a, in, in a certain scale, you know, the, that just becomes your center of gravity, right? It's like, why would you do anything else? If you've got, if you've gone so far down that road, yeah. why would you want to start some new army and some new scale? If you've got those resources to play with, right? Yeah. Well, particularly That's with the Armadi armies, the Renaissance and the ancients and the, and the Romans, we've got, as I say, we had we, it wasn't a problem to put together three thousand Romans on one table. Hmm. Um, wow. and we're, we're, oh, that's what the guys can do in our mighty Celt and Roman game this Thursday coming up. But yeah, then you can you can mm-hmm. I guess when you're when you're buying something to paint it, you're you can more think about hey, this is really cool. I'd like to paint these guys as opposed to oh my god, I need another division of Russian grenadiers. Yes. Yeah. It's well, like it, one does. Yeah, you're but, right. Yeah, you just go, well, Francis already has five divisions of Russian grenadiers, so I don't need to paint them if I don't want to. Exactly. You don't need to. Mm-hmm. And it, it's only because yeah. you feel like it's fun to do, like the Zouavs. I mean, it, it's fun to throw some Zouavs in my army. I've got, I don't know, 250 Union figures, maybe more. Guys with red pants. They'll say, what do you want to do? What period do you want to do? Do you want to do, uh, like, do, you want to do Italian Renaissance? Do you want to do... Uh, you know, ancients, do you want to do Celts and Romans? Do you want to do whatever? It doesn't matter. Mongols, Chinese. Rick has four different Chinese armies. Um, he's got two Mongol armies. Gene has two Mongol armies. We had a big Mongol clash one day at Gene's place. Um, that would be interesting. Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah Mongols versus Mongols. Uh, Persians, Greeks, you name it. Uh, Hittites, Sea Peoples, uh, um, Egyptians. Um, Would it be shorter to list what you don't have? Essentially, yeah, it is. Shorter <laughs> list what you don't have. Cavemen? Yeah. It's very, you know, no cavemen. Yeah. Okay. Or there's no, um, none of those, uh, the teddy bear wars. Oh, right, right. There's an oversight. Yeah, yeah, no teddy bear wars. I haven't, heard, I haven't heard zombies or pirates or cowboys either. Yeah, well, we have cowboys. Mark has cowboys. He's got the gunfight, oh, wow. gunfight game. So yeah, yeah, we do that. And you can do that. You know, like you could you could do a cowboy game with eighteen people around the table. Oh yeah, yeah. You know, everybody, every, yes. here's your yes. character. Yeah. Well, and when yeah. he dies, well, you get a new character and start at the end of the table. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, we've done that. It's a lot of fun. Yeah. Yeah. Actually, when you were talking earlier about skirmish games being played by large numbers of players, I was thinking James of your gangster games, which work pretty well yeah. if you've got a whole pile of factions and and that's why i designed it that way exactly for those yeah. occasions i need i need to come up with a different scenario i think everybody's sick of looking for the uh, golden teapot of petra i don't think anybody looks for anything james i think everybody just shoots everybody else they were like, look- really. the last time i the last time i ran it at rick's birthday they were looking for it there was actually oh, certain okay. under boxes People were actually oh, in okay. the warehouse, and then there was more gunfire, and people died in the warehouse. But, oh, okay. Well, you know. yeah. sounds uh, like a fun game. Oh, I thought it was. Yeah. Yeah. Nice and, yeah. yeah, the the James Gangster games look great. He's got lots of table scatter, and the figures are awesome. And yeah, mm-hmm. well, thank yeah. You. And, By yeah. the way, speaking of um, 
that sort of thing. I I just jumped on Bob Murch's uh, pre-order for his latest um, his latest okay. set of figures. Yeah, I I don't even know actually what I'm getting. I know there's some you know crazy ladies like dressed as explorers or Cthulhu investigators or whatever. I just anytime Bob comes out with new stuff, I buy it. Yeah, yeah Bob is, he's, he's a great guy. He's a good guy too. Just figure, yeah, just figure out what to do with it later. Yeah, he comes, he comes to convention here on a regular basis, and he was on a lot. He was down there this year. Yeah, there were three of us picked up COVID. He left a big hole yeah. when you move from here to out there. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. Yeah. Well, I think I'm going to move out there too. Haven't after having heard about. I'm going to move to White Rock. I think. Oh, wait a minute. No, I can't. I started. <laughs> I started a new job. Sorry. Um. So this is the part of the podcast normally where we do um, something called the Canadian Content Corner, and James and I sometimes debate, well, isn't the whole podcast Canadian? And yes and no and yes. But anyway. Well, that is, of course, the Maple Leaf Forever, the old national anthem of the Old Dominion, and it marks the start of the Canadian Content Corner. That's the part of the podcast where James and I just have a bit of a natter about Canadian military history, about Canadian gaming, or just general Johnny Canuck stuff that makes us darn proud to have maple syrup coursing through our veins. And so as the Maple Leaf Forever, played by Her Majesty's Irish Guards, dies away, here is the Canadian Content Corner. Thomas, seeing as you are still with us and you do uh, a kind of a really interesting social media project by sharing pictures primarily of the Second World War, Canadian pictures. Do you want to talk about that a bit? What, what got you started in that? Where do you get the photos from? What, what sort of things do you choose and why? I, what I try and do is, I, well, first off, I found them at the library, of uh, our Canadian Library and Archives. Uh, there's a specific section you have mm -hmm. to go to. It took a while to actually get to that particular section. Um, I ran across it kind of by accident. Went, well, these are cool pictures. I'll, you know, I'll just post them on Twitter. Just, you know, as a, an interesting thing to do because I'm interested in Canadian history. I'm interested in the Canadian military. Um, I read a lot of books about Canadian campaign in Normandy and, you know, up through Holland and into uh, the, uh, the Rhineland and right till the end of the war. And I read Terry Cobb, I read uh, uh, Mike Bestroll's books, I read, uh, you name it, all kinds, um, Zucal's, so, and compared a lot of them as well. And if, for me, that's it's a very, what the Canadians did there, particularly in Belgium and in Holland, is it, it's beyond heroic. It really is. I mean, it, what those guys did, punching their way through the, the Germans, trying to liberate the Dutch, and afterwards literally bringing in food to help feed the Dutch because they were eating nothing but tulips and grass and whatever else to get their hands on, right? Uh, bringing in food for them. I mean, they were liberators, but also saviors. And they, any Canadian knows that when you go to Holland because the, the Dutch just, you're from Canada? Oh, yeah. Can't do enough for you. And you see pictures of the little girls busy, you know, putting flowers on Canadian graves uh, every year. So to me, that's something that needs to be honored, needs to be celebrated. It needs to be told. And uh -huh. a lot of people don't really know what the Canadians did. They don't really get that sometimes. 
I know the Americans, some Americans do, the Brits maybe a little bit more, but even Canadians don't know, particularly the younger generations. They don't understand exactly what Canada did. And for me, it's, it's, it's part of it. Okay. I've got this. I got all these pictures. There's, there's, I don't know how many there's, there's lots of them. Uh, there's Royal Canadian Navy, Air Force, there's Army, et cetera, et cetera. But I'll do a theme. Like, for instance, I'll type in Sherman and it'll bring up all the pictures of Sherman tanks and I'll go through those and see what we have. You know, I typed in infantry and infantry or I'll, I'll target one particular regiment, like the Westminster Regiment, and it'll find different pictures of Westminster Regiment. And recently I typed in medic. So now I'm getting all the pictures with medics in them, right? Or medical. So, and then you have the description of what it is. And one of the things that a pet peeve of the library archives I have is a lot of, not a lot of them, but a number of the captions are wrong. Yeah. You know, for instance, there's a famous one of a, a panther turret that's encased, it's on the concrete base. And they're saying it's a 75 millimeter, millimeter anti-tank gun. Well, no, it isn't. It's a panther turret. And they have a little comment section so you can actually, you know, uh, suggest an edit. And I always put in that edit, but never gets changed. <laughs> it's a pet peeve of mine. So, but it's that's the reason why I do it. So the people will see that and it gets spread. And what it does is it, it celebrates what those men, those ladies did mm-hmm. because there were so many women nurses and you know the pilots that were flying aircraft over to England from Canada. Uh, their contribution. Yeah. My mother was a wren in the Navy. Oh, for our sake. Yeah. Uh, she was yeah. in Northern Ireland, um, joined the Wrens when she was 18 or 19 years old, met her first husband, who was a Canadian, who uh, hopped a boat in 39 and joined the RAF, became a bomber pilot, was flying Wellingtons in the desert with 221 Squadron, then got to, uh, he was in Iceland for a while. Supposedly, he was credited for sinking a German submarine, which he won the DFC for, and then he got transferred to Transport Command. Uh, he was flying. He liked the Wellington. He did not like the Hudson. Uh, the Hudson, he found, was a difficult airplane to fly. And I found out later on it had a nasty habit of stalling and going into a spin with landing gear down and full flaps on. Okay. It was a flaw in the design itself. So, and that's exactly what happened. He was had a, a bunch of uh, senior Canadian officers, and I think an English officer, an admiral in there, and some generals, uh, nine, seven or nine of them, I can't remember flying into Shivener because it was in bad weather and he came in for a landing and stalled and spun in and everybody died. My mother was, they'd been married six months. She was three months pregnant with my older brother when he was killed, Gordon Leslie McIntyre. So mm. she, well, of course she got demobbed because she was pregnant. She got out of the rents, went back to Northern Ireland. I had my older brother who's passed away a year ago, February. He's 14 years older than I am. So that's, that whole thing, you know, this is a military part in my family. So I've kind of documented his life and get a bunch of information. Same as Rita's dad, who was, he, um, he got drafted in the German army in 1940, mm. I think. Became a, he joined a security division, 281st Security Division, 396th uh, Regiment, sent to Russia. He was killed outside Veliki Luki in 1943, if I remember right, October the 29th or something, in the Battle of Newell got hit by some fragments and there was, he was taken back to battalion aid station. And back then they gave him a little card that says, you know, uh, tick off the boxes. I'm dying. I love you. You know, et cetera, et cetera. And this came in a package from Germany. And we actually, I wrote to Germany for his records. And this actually came along with a letter from Hauptmann Langfeld with a letter about uh, her grandfather saying he was a good soldier, came from Cologne, 
help with troops, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. He's a gay freighter, uh, corporal. All this information came, but there's this particular card that he filled out still had bloodstains on it. Oh, goodness. He filled it out, and it was sent to his, Rita's mom, or uh, Rita's grandmother, Nellie, uh, and all that information came through, and then they found out where he was buried. So Rita's mom, who was like five or six at the time, and they'd been shipped off to Austria uh, because Cologne was getting hammered by the bomber command. Right. Rita's mom hopped an airplane two weeks later. She was in an airplane to Russia. Found his grave. They got into a bus with a bunch of other German people drinking vodka, singing songs, and everybody got out to the grave site because the Germans and the Russians had collaborated, taken all these bodies from graveyards all over Russia and put them in communal graves, right? So that people could go there. And, and she said it was beautiful. Trees and grass was well taken care of. And the, the Bundes, uh, not the Bundes, but the Bundes, I can't remember the actual term, they take care of them just like the War Warriors Commission, right? The Warriors Commission. Yeah. That's so it's interesting, you know, her, her grandfather was German, you know, my family was on the Allied side. And, you know, you got to think, yeah. some poor schmuck who worked at a, basically it was a muggy plant. He was a cook in the muggy plant. And he wound up being a cook in the, in the division he was in. But somehow he wound up on the front line. I haven't been able to put that together because he wanted an Iron Cross second class and a close combat infantry class and a wound badge and all that stuff. So how does a cook get that? I kind of puzzled me. The Russian front was nasty. <laughs> It was nasty. Yeah. Maybe he was needed and was never never uh, sent back to his old trade. I don't know. Yeah. This is also being recorded for YouTube. So is this, can you, can you, this is uh, one of your tweets, uh, Thomas. Can you guys mm -hmm. see it? Yep. So this is from your uh, your Twitter feed for today, and I'm, I'm really struck by this image. Like you talked earlier about men and women. So this is a, a Canadian military doctor and anesthetist. An anesthetist. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That's an extraordinary photo. Um, I'd never seen that photo before, and uh, that's sort of typical of of your Twitter feed. So, if anybody, uh, I'll put a link to in the show notes. I'll, I'll include your your Twitter handle. Real, really encourage people to uh, to follow you because those sorts of images are, you know, sometimes they're well known photographs, and sometimes they're ones mm -hmm. I've never seen before. Yeah, yeah. yeah. it was uh, I think it was last year sometime, or maybe it was early this year. I can't remember. There, I found a bunch of pictures of the Bren Gun Factory in Ontario. And oh, yes. put them all together, them all, right? So it was, that was, in a, of all women, right? Uh, busy building the Bren Guns, which I found mm. very interesting. Yeah, wow. And speaking of Canadian history, I just wanted to flag a couple other things before we wrap up um, this segment. So, Thomas, this might, um, this might speak to you as well with your, you know, talking about our, our heritage. Um, yeah, so this guy, Private John Lambert, I don't know if you guys were, were following this, but uh, he was a Newfoundland guy whose um, body was discovered in 2016 and was positively identified and uh, was reburied quite recently. He was reburied, I think, in um, late June. And there were, um, yeah, 30 June uh, 2022. Uh, and there were uh, a number of guys from the, um, the Royal Newfoundland Regiment that were uh, sent over to... Um, for his burial, and uh, I just found out about that from following a, a woman called Dr. Sarah Lockyer, who's a forensic anthropologist who did does a lot of work for the Commonwealth uh, War Graves War Graves Commission. And so her Twitter account is really really interesting. Yeah, and, yeah, she is. She posts a lot of really interesting things. Yeah, yeah, and she was also involved as well in the the burial of an unidentified member of the. Uh, with Canadian Mounted Rifles, who, along with some British guys, was buried at the cemetery at Luz. So, 
And then the other thing that uh, you guys may have been tracking was the, the apology to the uh, ancestors of the uh, of number two uh, service battalion, which was the uh, the African Canadian um, mm-hmm. battalion that was used for basically for manual labor because they weren't allowed to fight. Right. And I just came across uh, a remarkable um, image, which was shared by the um, Canadian Forces Base Halifax. These are um, currently serving members whose ancestors served in uh, Number Two Construction Battalion, which I think is quite extraordinary. And one of them is um, a young petty officer. That's her top left here, hmm. Melissa Ogunya, and she spoke recently at um, a service for um, or a ceremony just before the the national apology that the Prime Minister took part in. And a number of reenactors from that group took part in um, the recent Halifax tattoos. So. I'll put a I'll put that in the notes as well. So that's that's very cool. I yeah. uh, I didn't see that one. I missed it. But yeah, there's a, there's an, if you Google it, there's, there's an excellent article written in Legion magazine about mm-hmm. the number two construction battalion. So if you want to do a Google and Legion and number two construction, it'll show up. Okay, I'll I'll look for that and put that in the notes. Yeah, lots of stuff. Lots of stuff happening in Canadian military history right now. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. Okay. Well, this is uh, getting to the point where we start um, wrapping up. And again, we've really, we've really enjoyed having you, Thomas. Um, this is um, the point where we ask our guests to uh, contribute a couple of books to our digital library. And we, of course, as I've said before, I've totally ripped this off from Sean from the God's Own Scale podcast. So mm-hmm. thanks, Sean. What have you got for us, Thomas? Well, as I mentioned earlier, there was Bloody Crucible of Courage uh, by Brenton Osworthy. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's very technical about the American Civil War, um, but it really at that period with rifled muskets and smoothbore muskets, and he goes into the various artillery pieces, smoothbore versus rifle, et cetera, et cetera, and even into the naval uh, actions um, and the sieges and things like that. It's a, it's an excellent text for anybody interested in that period. He's also written one on the Napoleonic period, which uh, is running around 50 bucks on a moment. Um, but eventually I may break down and buy it anyway. So if my birthday comes around, I can buy that one. Um, and read through that. But again, it's big. And the yeah. final one is even bigger than this one. So it's not an easy read. One of my favorite books to come out is recently, of course, is James Holland, Brothers in Arms. Oh, yeah, yeah. That's definitely on my list of books to read. How is it? It's excellent. It's, um, I read, um, there's three books. There's uh, The Colonel, a Christopherson. He wrote his book. And then there was um, one of the troop commanders, uh, two of them actually. Um, both of them, they uh, they wrote books. So I read those three, all those three books. But a lot of those are in here. Mm. So you don't have to read all those three books because a lot of it is in here. It's like, and when I came back to this, it was like old family. It's okay. I read those other three books, and it's, it's all right here again, right? Oh goodness. Um, actually, I created a scenario from one of the fellows, one of the battles, he was in the Battle of Kievelberg for Rapid Fire Reloaded. So I'll, I'll design okay. scenarios around things I read in a history book, yeah. too. Yeah. What's this about? The Battle of Sisteron, I did the same thing with that. That was uh, an operation during Black Hawk. That's that winter World War II game that I put together. Um, and that's a lot of fun. Um, mm-hmm. But it's 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 an excellent book. That's the one with the winter battlefield, right? It's the winter battlefield, yeah. 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 I love that. Uh, I love that table. Yeah, they're both done in winter. Yeah. Uh, whenever, you, whenever you show photos of that table, I always get chills. <laughs> it makes me well, feel good. Yeah. 
Yeah. It just shows how crazy I'm drilling out matchsticks to put barbed wire through. Um, but in, <laughs> the level yeah. of insanity that goes with the game. Well, it's, it comes with a course. Yeah. No, that's great. And and those sorts of games are so much more interesting than just, you know, a thousand points to side have at it, I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. You, sometimes, well, with a lot of it, if you're creating a scenario from history, you have to tweak it so it'll actually be a decent game. Yeah. For instance, mm-hmm. the Battle of Sister. The, uh, the fifth Queen's own rifles uh, took the first row of houses in Sisteron. The Germans counterattacked with a full battalion and tanks and SP guns, right? So in game terms, they just get overrun. The British get overrun. So tank, the British tanks showed up later, about two or three hours later. So what I did is I just brought them in in turn two. So at least the British infantry have a bit of a chance, right? So it, it's you're fudging a little bit, um, but it works. And that's the key point. Now, that's the third one. Um, I picked this up at uh, a used bookstore recently. Strangely enough, it was uh, it owned by the U.S. Army. Oh, uh, it had never been read. Right. <laughs> no, no surprise. There's a library card in the back with nothing on it. <laughs> <laughs> Which I found very interesting. Yeah. What a surprise. And, uh, I'm not quite finished yet. Um, my old cap tally is a, is a bookmark. Oh goodness! Look at that. Oh, and uh, but it's it's very interesting because it goes into the early war, uh, in between war years, and the senior officers um, that were coming up to the ranks, Creer and Simons, and and all the rest of it, and what they what they were doing, what they weren't doing, how they were dovetailing with the British Army, um, how they were, they created a college in Canada uh, for senior officers. And how well that did. And they realized, of course, that the senior officer course in Canada wasn't as good as the one in England. And they tried to get more guys in England as often as possible. But he details the mistakes that are made by the Canadians, right? Especially senior command. And there's actually one other book, uh, 21 Days uh, in Normandy. And it's about the 4th Canadian Armour Division. There's a chap, I uh, can't remember his name. He's a uh, rhoded Canadian. Uh-huh. And it, it talks about their attack um and it was so narrow they only had 800 yards for a full division to advance in and this is what Mm. that's basically a squadron size right so how can a full division advance and right at the beginning within the first day the first armored uh brigade the brigadier was wounded and basically taken out of action and they couldn't find this replacement for another three hours so chain of command kind of fell apart but this was Simon's idea of moving forward. He wanted to have a big panzer wedge with infantry to punch their way through. The theory with that is okay, but the problem is, is now the Germans shift troops firing from the flanks, both sides, all those guys that are unoccupied doing nothing, now are shooting at that column and they can shift troops from those flanks in behind the troops that are already there. So put in a layered defense. And that makes it very tough. So you kind of look at what Simons did early on and look at what Simons did later. He learned. It took him a while to get there, but he eventually that's it there. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. That's, yeah. It's a very good book, actually. Yeah. Worth all reading. I'll put it in our show notes. Angelo Caravaggio's book. Yeah. Yeah. He's uh, Caravaggio. He's not too hot on Simons. And mm-hmm. oddly enough, this guy is. He likes Simons, hmm. which I found very interesting. John English. Right. Yeah, yeah. You know, he's, he's, he says that Simons was a real detailed guy. He, they, everything had to be perfect the way it was supposed to be. He was a, uh, very much like Monty, modeled himself after Monty, but 
very much a nitpicker and a controller too, where he would actually give details to each brigadier what they're supposed to do instead of letting the divisional commander do what they're supposed to do, yeah. which is pass on the orders. Yeah, there's a there's a lot of strong feelings pro and against him for sure. And and if you put uh, six Canadian Normandy historians in a room, you'll probably depending on their, you know, their vintage, you'll probably get six different opinions for sure. Seven. Yeah. Well, thank you. That's great. Exactly. Yeah. So those are the big books that. Sorry, I, uh, James. What was that? Well, you'll you if you have six historians, you'll get seven opinions. Probably. Yeah. 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 versus Simmons. Yeah. And David O'Keefe's books are good too. Yeah. He used some excellent books. Yeah, yeah. His book on um, uh, Dieppe and um, Enigma was just fascinating. Yeah, very much so. Yeah. Totally opened up my eyes about Dieppe for sure. Yeah. Right. Well, speaking of books, uh, I am currently uh, working my way through um, uh, this book, Canadians Under Fire, Military Infantry Effectiveness in the Second World War by Robert Engen. And we're hoping to have him as our guest in oh. our August podcast. Oh, nice. And uh, yeah, I'm just trying to confirm that he's in the process of relocating to work with the Australian um, uh, Defense Academy in Canberra, but he's still in Canada waiting for his visa. So uh, hopefully we'll get him on the podcast in August. Yeah, that'd be, exactly. that'd be a really good one. Yeah, yeah he's, a, he's a well-published historian. He's done a lot of stuff on professional military um, education, wargaming and education. Mm -hmm. And I saw James in your Twitter feed. You've got Henry Hyde's book. Yes. Yeah. Yes. It's a massive book. Oh, no. yeah. Yeah. It's not, it's, it's not going with me to work to read at lunchtime. It's just too heavy. No. <laughs> you know, you're trying to read it in bed and it's like, you know, your, your wrists break sitting up and. Or it falls on your face as you start to get sleepy. And... Yeah. It's yeah, a exactly. weight hole. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's... Chock full of great ideas. Oh, yeah. It's a lovely book and uh, well worth waiting for. And for very, sure. very little eye candy mm. i was mm. expecting you know, a lot of color pictures and you know gaming porn like become a, a, accustomed to and there's very little of that it's very mm. dense pages of writing you know it's it's worth the money you're not getting fluff no that's a great point yeah we're very grateful to you henry it's a great tool so yeah henry is a great guy and and uh, yeah we'd love to talk to him at some point so uh just Last few minutes wrapping up. Thomas, you're a guest. What what are you working on right now? You're working on Zuavs? Zuavs. I just finished a, a unit for my War of the Roses army. I did some, quickly painted up some dismounted knights, men at arms. And I've got, uh, like, finished off some wagons just recently, some supply wagons. Wagons are great. The War of the Roses, hmm. uh, front rank, yeah. of course. Oh, uh, painted all those up. And then, um, yeah, that's that's basically when I finished off my crossbow, which is after the fire, um, we didn't really have space to paint. So in after the first, well, the first month in September after the fire, we moved six times. Yeah. And then we finally found a spot that was semi-permanent, the uh, top floor of a house that was freezing most of the time all winter. And <laughs> paint would probably freeze if I tried to paint, but uh, there just wasn't space there to paint. So I didn't really get painting again until we found this this spot here where in so Surrey. So I've got my little table set up and I got my paint rack and bought a paint rack on Amazon. I got my lights and off we go. Nice. I'm so glad to see you back in action. Yeah. What uh, what rules are you going to use for those um, uh, Where's the Roses guys? Um, are we use, um, well, we used 
I'll go back to that Armadi, use Armadi. And for the some of the larger game, we actually did their Armadi Big Battles, which is this uh, experimental rule set that Chris and Armadi already were working on, which never really came to fruition. But we just play it in our group. So it's just a lot of fun. It's different. Um, and it separates it into a different type. Because Armadi 2 is a tournament game. It okay. really is you know, 150 points to your side and blah, 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 and off you go, right? So, um, and it plays like a tournament game. It has some oddball things in it. For instance, if a, a unit breaks off, now you have this one single unit can run around the table and do whatever it wants. And in ancients or in Renaissance, that just never happened. Right. No, so, no. Yeah. A little, yeah, a little gamey. It's yeah. a little gamey, yeah. yeah. But it's fun. And, and that's that's the thing. You can put, throw figures in a table, play a game in an hour and a half, you're done. Right. Well, there you go. That's at some point it's all about playing. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. And and you've got uh, Tom Egan from uh, the well-known Twitter Irish Wargamer coming over some at some point soon. Is that correct? Yeah, he's supposed to be coming to Vancouver to visit his brother. So yeah. if I can I can convince him to come out to White Rock and uh, have a Thursday night game with the with the crew, I'm sure he'd love that. Uh, oh, I'm sure I'm sure he'll be there for sure. So he'd be more good. than welcome to come and join yeah. the group. Well, that would be grand. I look forward to hearing mm -hmm. about that. We have another chap in the group who's from Dublin, Mark, Mark McDonald. Uh, so he would, I'm sure the two of them would have chew the fat about Ireland and things like that. So the, he's from Dublin. Okay. Oh, okay. Yeah. Me and Tom Egan would have a few things to chat about. Oh, you wouldn't, you wouldn't get a word in edgewise, I'm sure. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Guinness would be James, what are you working on right now? <laughs> Prussians. I am. I am working on wave two of my Napoleonic Prussians. Scott and I had a big game of General Darmy, and that reinvigorated me into Napoleonic. I assembled two boxes of Perry Plastics, which has given me six roughly battalion-sized batches. Mm -hmm. Lovely work, too, by the way. Oh, thank you. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And hopefully, all six. All, hopefully, the rest of them will turn out the same way. And what are you doing with all those Austrians? Have you decided? Um, I'm think I'm going. I'm going to start out small, like just do just do a, a force for sharp practice, and then see where I go from there. Which will probably mean I'm going to end up painting all of them and have another army for General Army. So that's like phase five of my big plan, I think now. Which which will mean I have to buy more cavalry for them and artillery. Because I don't have any artillery for them, so yeah, doom. I'm I'm just hearing doom, doom. You can never have enough Prussians. Doomy doom. No, you are doomed. I'm afraid. Yeah, well, because I've still got a pile of I've still got a pile of Russians to paint. Hmm. You know, for a deep dark hole. Oh yeah, well you know people keep giving people keep throwing. Hey, here's another Napoleonic army for you. Boom! It's like. <sighs> yeah, I'm having trouble feeling sorry for you, mate. I'm sorry. Like, yeah. thank you for the free figures, you know. Like, but, you know, yeah. and I'm weak, and I can't just say, "Oh no, I'll, you know, I'll put them in to bring them by and donate it, donate the money to charity or something." I'm I'm weak. I'm I'm just I'm a whore for figure, and so I'll and Austrians are nice. They are nice, and the reason to paint is just white. Yeah. I wish people wouldn't say that. Oh, I'm sorry. I just said it. That is bull. People, oh, you're just going to spray paint them? It's like, no. Oh, are you going to spray paint your American Civil War guys as blue? No. All right. No. White yeah. is a very demanding color, Michael. It is. Yeah. It is. Yeah. If, if, like, that, and that, I think that white, white and yellow really separate the good painter, like, the really good painters 
from the rest of us. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, and, right. Like you know, in a, like if I'm if I'm a, at a painting competition, you see something that's like white. It's like look at look at the shading on that. You know, and it's just like you know, show me show me your white stuff. Mm-hmm. And I will, you know, like it's very easy to get, you know, highlights and contrast and stuff with red and blue and gray, but white is very difficult to be subtle with. Yeah. And it's I, for white, I used to use the gray as a base, now I use yellow. 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 Yeah. Interesting. I use like a, almost a, a pigskin color for the first color. Then I do uh, a yellowish buff for the second color and then cream for the third color. Hmm. Hmm. I I keep that in mind. I'm going to have to revisit that idea. I, uh, I apologize to you, James. I, I paint uh, white figures in six millimeters. So my time spent on them is a little bit less. Well, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, You're just kind of, yeah. Picking up faces, faces and, and shakos and there you go. You're done. Well, So Rita just pointed out to me that I forgot that during the fire, I lost all my, all my rivers and uh, hills and stuff like that. So there was a fellow down in the States named Joe um, who does Wargamers terrain. Oh, yes. And, uh, oh, that's a very pretty hill. Did some hills for me. Uh, and he's actually he shipped it to me. And this is the box it came in. Oh, nice. Wargamers terrain. Okay. Yeah. And the wrap, each one's wrapped in tissue so and he's got uh and that's that's a river section there Ooh, that's lovely right and it's it's flexible oh. so you can lay it on top of hills or wherever you want to do it and it, he actually takes mineral oil and puts it on top of the, the river itself to keep it shiny so he says every now and again to get some mineral and just shine it up a bit oh it's lovely it's absolutely lovely yeah. how are how are and- his- prices um this was about 140 dollars about 12 feet so it's not bad you know the hills were i think about 10 or 15 bucks a piece that's that's nice so you know all in all i lost i had, had these mill streams from Limax, and they were running around 60 dollars a piece i had three of them so mm. pretty much the insurance covered all of that and it's so called war games terrain Wargamers terrain, yeah, it's called War, uh, Wargamers terrain. Oh, Wargamers terrain. Wargamersterrain.com. And it, it, he's in the states. How is this? He's a one-man guy. Does it in the basement, you know? And his communication was amazing. He says, "I'm going to start your project next week. You know, I'm going to do the rivers." And he says, "Halfway through the rivers, and I'm done the rivers. Going to do the hills now." And then he sent me a tracking number with the shipment, all the rest of it. So there we there go. Yeah. And terrain, yeah. How is it? How is his shipping? Right. Excellent. Yeah. Drolinarius. Okay. Yeah. Some some American businesses, unfortunately, their their shipping is just terrible. Because yeah. yeah, we packed it really well. There was you know those airbags that went all the way around the outside of it. This box is nicely cushioned inside. Came with some perfect condition. And he sent me an email. He says if there's anything wrong with the box, he says make sure you take pictures of it and note it and etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera. But it was in great shape. Well, that's great. That's great. Yeah. Oh, that's a good recommendation. We should be getting some orders from Canada. Well, we'll I'll make sure that uh, the link to that is in our that's channel. That's what we're here well. for. Yep. That's what we're here for. Mm-hmm. All right, gentlemen. I, uh, I'm i not going to say anything about what I'm working on, except it's uh, free, free Foundry Prussian Dragoons almost done. And then I think uh, it'll be a 15 millimeter DBA army. And I just have to choose Sea Peoples, New Kingdom Egyptians, or 
Assyrians. I haven't decided yet. So uh, got to go with the Assyrians. They're the winners. Well, they are the powerhouse army, but you got all that nice bronze scale armor, the big mm-hmm. pointy yeah. helmets. Yes. Yeah. Four horse. I finally got a chance to put my early Hebrew DBA army on the table, and I'm 0 for 3. It's a terrible yeah. army. But yeah. Well, anyway. they're, they're just wearing t shirts with pointy sticks. Yeah, exactly. But yeah. I do have a I do have an Ark of the Covenant on order, so I'm, that'll hopefully juice juice play the early Hebrews. Yeah, yeah. I'll just open it halfway through the battle. I'll open it. All right, all right, gentlemen. Thank you very much. I uh, as we say goodbye. I just wanted to say that the Canadian Wargamer podcast is a labor of love. We never ask you for money. We just ask you for your ears, and we ask you to tell other people about it. So. Uh, uh, thank you to everybody who listened. 5,000 downloads. So grateful. Here's to the next 5,000. Thomas, do you uh, want us to find some music to play you out? Military, Canadian military music? Um, Canadian military music. Yeah. Honestly, I can't think of any other than Heart of Oak. Heart of Oak. All right. Okay. Yeah. I don't know if you um, know uh, Sean Taylor across the water from you in Victoria, but yeah, I Sean turned us down when he, we offered uh, Hearts of Oak. He chose the march past of the Rocky Mountain Rangers where he was a cadet. But we'll dig up Hearts of Oak for you. Let that uh, play us out. Thank you again, Thomas, and good night to all of you. Good night, uh, James. And good night to all our ships at sea and listeners. Exactly, yeah. Thank you, gentlemen. Thank you. Yes.